0: If you will, please turn back in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, under the title of the message this morning, The Benevolence and Blessings of God our Father to His Children, Benevolence and Blessings. Now the word benevolence might not be as familiar to you. Benevolence is really just a word that means kindness. God's, God's loving kindness. God's care for His children. He's a benevolent God. Sometimes people even use the word beneficent. Beneficent. God is a Giver of kind and loving gifts. And Paul wants to make sure that the Thessalonians, even in this second letter, to know of God the Father's kindness. Now remember, first and second Thessalonians are probably, if not, the earliest letters Paul ever wrote possibly the book of Galatians coming before it, but very early on in the first century, perhaps in the year of our Lord, 48 or 49 or 50, 1 Thessalonians was written, and now probably quickly on the heels of First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians comes along, probably again 50, maybe 51 at the latest in the first century. And Paul, not yet being able to be with the Thessalonians, as we've been studying, realizes that there are more things that he needs to teach the Thessalonians and to remind the Thessalonians and to even warn the Thessalonians, as we saw when we read earlier in our service of some of the things that are going on in which Paul wants to ensure that these believers are spiritually fortified. And so now having finished First Thessalonians, last Lord's Day, we come now to the beginning of this three-chapter letter where Paul, of course, as is his custom and was the custom of the first century in regular letter writing to introduce himself, and he says, Paul... Silvanus, or Silas, same person, and Timothy. Paul does this because he wants the Thessalonians to know that it is an official letter from him and his comrades, his associates, his ministry partners. This is very, very common for Paul to do. He does it in all of his letters introduces himself, and if there are those who are helping him, including a secretary or an amanuensis or maybe a letter sender after the letter has been written, it will be sent probably by one of these brothers or someone else. And so Paul wants to ensure that those who are receiving the letter and who will be reading the letter know that it is a letter from Paul. It's an apostolic letter injunction. It's an apostolic writing that Paul wants to ensure that they know is coming from him. This is all very clear to us. Paul writing 13 letters of the New Testament always starts out by identifying himself. This is very, very common, common for all the letters that were written, even non-biblical letters. These are These are the ways and means in which these letter writers wrote. They introduce themselves in the beginning, in the opening, and of course, they give their greetings just like you and I would if we wrote a letter to someone, and then of course they write what is on their hearts in the middle portion of the letter, and then they close or give a benediction, and that's of course exactly what Paul does here. But who is Paul writing to? Well, it says at the end of chapter 1, verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is this letter from Paul with his ministry associates, Silas and Timothy, and it is to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, this is all very standard, as I've said. But I want you to notice something. This is different from First Thessalonians one one in a couple of different ways. Now, look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verse one. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Same kind of introductory identification of these who have put this letter together, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's exactly the same. Or is it? Read carefully. Go back to 2 Thessalonians one To the church of the Thessalonians in, and that is exactly the same, but notice the difference, God our Father. You say, well, it's just uh, Paul writing it a different way, it's a second letter, it's not the first, it's really not important whether or not it says God the Father or God our Father, and I would beg to differ. Because notice what it says in verse 2 of Second Thessalonians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The exact same grammatical construction. And this, my friends, means that there is an emphasis going on. Because twice, two times in a row here, in these two verses, in this second letter... Paul is emphasizing the idea that God is our Father. Now, it's not to say that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father is to de-emphasize that He is our Father. That's more, I would say, a declaration. He is God the Father. He's the first person of the Godhead. But here, when Paul gives this second letter, he wants to emphasize something. And what he wants to emphasize is that God is our Father. Now, God is the Father, Father with a capital F. But here, he wants to emphasize that God is not only the Father, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but He is our Father. Now, that's important. And do you see what happens when we read sometimes and we read so quickly that we don't always see the nuancing that's going on? So here's what I did this week. I read this over and over and over again, asking myself the question, why emphasize two times in two verses when usually this is just a seemingly random opening, uh, an obligatory opening, uh, a ho-hum, there it is, that opening again. Paul wants to emphasize something. He wants to emphasize not only the fatherhood of God, but the fatherhood of God for children of God, sons and daughters of God. He wants us to know that God is our Father. And he wants particularly the Thessalonians to know that God is their Father because of what they're going through. Do you see three key words as you go on and read and as we read earlier in our Scripture reading this great letter? Does not Paul say in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, and notice this, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And then the very next verse, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also, what? suffering. You see those three key words there? Persecutions, verse 4, afflictions, verse 4, and suffering, verse 5. I think it is no wonder that Paul wants to emphasize God as our Father to these beloved Thessalonian children of God because of what they're going through. They are being persecuted for their faith. They are experiencing great afflictions, which Paul says you are enduring, and he says you are also suffering for the kingdom of God. Now, my dear friends, even if you and I are not saying that we are experiencing grand persecutions much affliction, and the suffering of what it means to be worthy of the kingdom of God, you and I still have challenges in our life, don't we? We still have challenges. It may not be that you and I have a knife to our throat. It may not be that you and I are undergoing immense affliction for our faith. It may not even be that you and I are suffering at some great lengths so that we might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. It might be none of those things in our present experience. It might be some for some of you. It might be not much for most of us, and it could be hardly any of these things for all of us. But for these people, for these believers, they're going through it. They are really going through it. They're being persecuted. They're they're afflicted. They're they're suffering. And, And when they are, don't you think that Paul would then want to say to them, and please do not forget that God is your heavenly father? That God, your heavenly father, knows what your needs are, He knows about this suffering. He knows about the persecution. He knows all about the afflictions. And you must know that you are the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father. And by the way, I know that you might think I'm a real particular kind of guy, and I guess in some ways it is, especially when it comes to Scripture. But that little preposition there, in God our Father... In, Do you know what Paul is saying by that? It's glorious truth. Here's what he's saying. That you and I, and these Thessalonians particularly, because of what they're going through, are in vital union with God their heavenly Father. Vital union. They're in Him. And he is in them. But what, a, what a grand truth, my friends. We are in God. And, and not only in God the Father, he says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in vital union with the Father, our Father, and we're in a vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. I say Jesus, our Savior, and of course, we're also in the Holy Spirit. You know what kind of encouragement this would be? That in the midst of all of their persecution in the midst of all of their afflictions, in the midst of all of their suffering, they can go back time and time and time again to the vital truth that they are in union with God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior and ours. My friends, When you and I are going through difficult seasons, difficult experiences, difficult issues, no matter what they are, cling to an opening like this. Cling to it. Believe yourself in the company of those who are the children of our Heavenly Father. This is not just a ho-hum opening. This is, this is vital truth. You say, well, tell me more. Tell me more. I mean, the benevolent God, our Father, what kind of benevolence? What kind of kindness? What kind of love? I tell you, there is so much packed here, and I can only give you a few passages But when we're finished today, I want you to pray a prayer of praise to your Heavenly Father about how benevolent he is to you. I'll tell you what benevolence looks like. You want some descriptors? I'll give you maybe two categories of of benevolence descriptions, two examples of his love and two examples of his giving, all right? Now, we're not going to go here in Second Thessalonians, although we will for the second outline point, but I just want you to take a few passages, I want you to write them down either in the margin of your Bibles or in your notes, or if you're taking notes on the back of the Lord's Day bulletin, I want you to write these passages down. Now, I want you to turn to them as well, but I want you to write them down, and I want you to ruminate over them. I want you to meditate upon them because these are grand truths of the benevolence of our God. And the first one is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want you to turn there with me, and I want you to see the benevolence of God our Father. And this may be a strange place for you to assume that I would go first, but I want you to know this. God's love is a display of His benevolence. God's love is a display of benevolence of his benevolence. And do you realize that it's not just God's love toward his own people like I've been saying, but it's also the character of God even to be a lover of his enemies. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is this is incredible. Look at verse 43. Jesus' teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus is is uh, sort of upturning, uh, overturning this idea. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And of course, this kind of teaching would be reverberating through the teaching ministry of Paul to these very Thessalonians. Pray pray for those who are persecuting you. Pray for those who are afflicting you. Pray for those for whom you're suffering at their hands. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, listen to this, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See that filial relationship? Jesus is saying, if you want to be like God, be a lover of your enemies. If you want to be a true son of your Father who is in heaven, don't just do the easy thing, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, do the hard thing, love your neighbor and love your enemy. How does our Father model this? For He makes His Son, that is the sun, the sunrise. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. Do you see how benevolent He is? And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's no split in the cosmos. There's no split in the rain where only the just and the righteous get the rain uh, for their crops and uh, the unrighteous don't. He says, no, our Father sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus goes on to say in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He says, What credit is there if you turn around and love the people who love you? That's easy, he's saying. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, the pagans, the unbelievers? And then verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, if you are the kind of person who wants to know what kind of benevolence is our God, what what kind of attribute is it, uh, what what kind of, of expression is it, I tell you, he loves his enemies. He's even kind to those who spit in his face. That's a benevolent God, my friends. That's a loving, caring God to give rain for the just and the unjust. So be a lover of your enemies and you will be benevolent like God. Here's here's yet another example. Look over in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, here's here's another kind of loving, and it's God's love for His own children, His redeemed, His saints. He doesn't just love His enemies, but He also loves His children with an everlasting love. Why? Because God is love. This is that famous statement. Look at 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is what? Love. Now, it's not true in the reverse. Love is God. That wouldn't be true. But it is true to say this. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, how did, how did God manifest the showing of His love among us? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. My friends, do you want to see the most grand expression of His love? I mean, it's one thing for God to express his love by allowing the rains and the seasons to fall on the just and the unjust. And that is an expression of his love. And it's also an expression of love toward his enemies, these unjust people of our world. But this is the most grand kind of love. Why? Because he gave up his own son In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Notice that so that statement. For the purpose of His sending His only Son into the world, that we might live. That we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And here it is again, and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. He had an answer to our sin problem. And the answer to our sin problem is to send his only son into the world to be the satisfaction of the sin problem for everyone who would ever believe. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You want to see the love of God? See the love of God in Christ as you and I are continually being perfected in love. That's a benevolent God. That's a loving, gracious God, who would give up his own son in sacrificial love so that you and I might be perfected in love. This is a, this is a grand design. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. That's another, another benevolence of God, that He gives us His Spirit so that His Spirit could energize us and empower us to live the Christian life triumphantly. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the third time He's mentioned the sacrifice of Christ, the Saviorhood of Christ. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. What a benevolent God that He abides in us. And what, and what is more? That we abide in Him. This is our benevolent God. Do you... You find yourselves, as you're reading the Scripture, perhaps even 1 John 4, shooting up one of those praise prayers to God, thank you for abiding in me. And thank you for the glorious reality that I cannot fathom in its depths, that you abide in me. I abide in you. And he's not even finished. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides him and He abides in him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. How do we come to know and to believe the love God has for us? How is it God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. How do we know that God loves us? Because he brought the Savior into the world, because he brought the Savior to us, because he opened our eyes, because he's perfecting that love in us. He is the benevolent, holy Father God, so much so that you and I may have confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence. A sure and steady anchor. He's not even finished. He says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, that is the perfect love of Jesus Christ, casts out fear. What kind of fear? The fear of judgment. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Oh, my dear friends, if you want to know about the character of God, If you want to know why Paul is saying to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, look no further than this phrase, God is love. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's the lover of his children. He loves us. He cares for us. Now, I know some of you say, well, but see, Lance, you don't quite understand. If, if you're telling me that my father loves me, father with a capital F, I struggle with that. And I've counseled innumerable numbers of people who would say something just like that to me. I, I, I struggle with that because when the Bible tells me that my father loves me, uh, the only thing that I have is a, is a, is a mirror of is my earthly father who didn't love me at all, who didn't care about me. And so I struggle with this. I've heard that many times. And the way I've tried to answer that for hurting persons is to usually say two things. Number one, don't forget that this kind of heavenly father is the father of perfections he's never let anyone down. He's never disappointed someone. He's kind. He's loving. He's benevolent. He's, he's everything that all human fathers are not. And then usually the second thing I say to them, because if they're meeting we, with me in my office and they come into the pastor's office and they sit down, and they might even be trembling a little bit because they might think of themselves a little bit intimidated, and then they talk about this terrible relationship with their father, and then they might even say something, and several of them have. Well, of course, I'm assuming that you don't know anything about that. You're a pastor. You've probably come out of a pastor's home, or or you were um, in a Christian home and they go on to make all kinds of assumptions which assumptions are all wrong all untrue I didn't grow up with a father My parents were divorced when I was 4 years old I didn't meet him again until I was 44 years old Didn't grow up with a father Didn't grow up with with a male figure and all of the people who were in my mother's life as a male figure were not who they needed to be, I can assure you. And so if there's anyone that had all of the lousiest examples of a father figure or a father model, it would have been me. And yet the Bible tells me that even when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. That's what it says in the Psalms. And the father figures, or maybe your actual father, or your stepfather, or whoever that might be, who was either a faint glimpse of a good example or a model, or perhaps no model at all, is actually not the Bible's point. The Bible's point is this, whatever faint reflection you have of a father who was either great or bad to the bone, none of them. Even the best among us cannot compare to the benevolence of our Heavenly Father. He loves His enemies. He, he loves His children. He, he, he wants to give good gifts to His children. In fact, that's really our, our second set of examples. Not just examples of His love, but examples of His giving. you want to see an example of His giving, turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and uh, when we go there, my kids will be chuckling, my adult children, because I used to quote this verse all the time, all the time to all of my eight children. Matthew chapter 7, beginning verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's the that's the, the, the great... Ask, ask, seek, and knock, right? A-S-K. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. In other words, pray to your heavenly Father. Ask him, seek him, knock at his door. Because he's the kind of God who wants to give good gifts to to his children. And then notice the illustration here in verse 9 of Matthew 7. Or, Jesus says, which one of you, if his son, presumably of course, talking about a father, if his son, the son of that father, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? I mean, it's a legitimate request. Father, I am your son. Would you please give me some bread? And the father returns the request with a stone, a hard stone that would break your teeth if you tried to eat it? Come on. Jesus is saying, if, if you want a comparison about an earthly father, then what earthly father is going to trade his son's request for bread with a stone? And if you want a comparison, if your heavenly Father is asking, is is being asked, is being sought, is having his door knocked on, what will he do? He'll answer. Now, of course... Not in an unqualified way, he'll answer according to his will, he'll answer according to his purpose, he'll answer according to what he knows is right, and that's often at some level in which you and I don't know what is right, and perhaps sometimes we're asking and seeking and knocking for things that we shouldn't have because we have a limited wisdom and a limited vision, but if those things are God's will, of course he's so benevolent he'll give us what we ask, of course. Jesus doesn't stop. He says in verse 10, or if he, that same son, asks his father for a fish, will he give him a serpent? I mean, he's using these grotesque examples. Bread, stone, fish, serpent? Come on. If you then... You, earthly fathers, who are evil, we're we're all sinful and wicked, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? And boy, we'd be driving down the road, and my eight kids, and usually sort of either Sunday lunch or Sunday dinner if we're not with somebody, and we're driving down the road, and I know exactly what my kids are thinking. There's a Wendy's right there. There's a fast food right there. Oh, there's my favorite restaurant right there. And I can anticipate what they're thinking. And as we're driving, and my wife is there in the passenger seat, and we're driving along, and I might even hear one of the kids in the back saying, Daddy, Daddy. And my wife is anticipating the same thing. And she says, you know, we've got food at home. That was her standard line. The Proverbs 31 woman. We don't need to spend money on that because we've got some bread and some meat at home and I I can make that and and we'll all be good. And my kids are saying, oh, but I can taste that Wendy's. And as soon as we got to that, that driveway, I would turn left right into that Wendy's almost every time. And she'd say, Lance, we've got food at home. And my answer would be, but does not a father know how to give good gifts to his children? And there we were, dad and the whole crew utterly satisfied. This is, this is our benevolent God. If we ask or seek or knock for the things that he knows are good for us and Wendy's is absolutely good for you, then he is benevolent toward us because he loves us and he loves to give us good gifts and not only that example but how about James chapter 1 James chapter 1 do you want to do you want to know where every good gift comes from James chapter 1 verse 17 after James has made it clear that God tempts no one. He doesn't solicit anyone to do evil. He tempts no man. He cannot be charged with any such thing. He says, I'll show you the opposite. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from our benevolent God. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our Father of lights. He brightens my day. He gives me light for the darkness. He provides the answers. He loves us and He gives us every good thing and every perfect gift. I tell you, these, just these two... Descriptions alone, God as love, God is love, God as love, and God as giver of good gifts. Th- those are enough, but do you know the Bible doesn't stop there. I wish we had more time to be able to say, what, what else can you tell me about this God, our Father? What else can you tell me about him? Well, he's kind, he's gracious, he's loving, he's omniscient, omnipotent. He, 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 will, he will stop at nothing to effectuate his plan and his purpose. And for us as his children will be the plan and the purpose that will always be perfect for us. Even if we don't always see it. Even if we don't always know it. And even if we don't always assume that we like it. Trust his plan. Know his heart. And here's his heart. He's a benevolent God. In fact, he's God, our Father. And he proved it because we're in not only God, our Father, but we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in him too. We're, we're in him in the sense that he died for us. And because he died for us, we are in him, which is the ark of safety. No No disease no no sickness no no trouble no persecution no affliction no storm no suffering will ever separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord you see there's a lot in this sentence isn't there there's a lot here and we're not done It's not only the benevolence of God to his children, it's also the blessings. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. You say, oh, I've read this a thousand times. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there it is again. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. And now it's attached not just to the benevolence of the character of God, but also what he dispenses to his children. And what does, he, what does he dispense to his children? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. In fact, so much so that, that Paul doesn't want to stop just in the opening to talk about grace. Notice what he does in verse 12 of chapter 1. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God. Sometimes you'll... Uh, talk maybe to an older person it's seemingly sort of my age and higher when you might greet a fellow christian you might give him a hug or a holy handshake and you say how are you doing by the grace of god i am what i am by the grace of god look my friends never tire of talking about or musing on the grace of god the grace of god and our lord jesus christ and what is the last verse of second thessalonians say chapter 3 verse 18 the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you all folks don't quickly and in a perfunctory way or an obligatory way read these words off the page opening or closing and not spend time thinking about the implications of them what's the implication of this that grace god's favor is to me you see that grace to you grace to you god's favor i've I just read two other references the the grace of god and you know there's, a, there's another look at chapter 2 verse 16 Here's yet a fourth time, if you include the opening and the closing and the verse I just read, and now this one, chapter 2, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, there it is again, our Heavenly Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through what? Through grace. Oh, Don't miss the prepositions. Through grace, by grace, for grace, in grace. No wonder Spurgeon titled one of his volumes, All of Grace. All of Grace. Eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's the kind of grace we're talking about. Grace is is God's divine favor. And you know, when God decides, and for us, in eternity past, He decided to bestow His favor not for anything that He saw in us. If there was anything that He saw as He looked down the corridors of time in us, there was nothing savable. It was all sin. But He determined after the counsel of His own will, Ephesians chapter 1, to set His love upon us so that you and I could forever say, both now and in eternity, I'm here where I am because the grace of God was with me. Grace to you. Favor to you. And it didn't even stop there. It, it was the kind of favor that was bestowed on God's enemy. In, in James, I read chapter 1. If, if you go on in James, you, you might even turn back over there. Here's, here's the kind of thing that we're talking about when we're talking about who we were prior to Christ, prior to Christ coming into our life. Look at what it says in James chapter 4. You adulterous people, James four four, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, and that's what we were. Coming right out of the womb, we were God's enemy, and we continued to perfect the art of being God's enemy every day moment that we lived. And regardless of whether or not you were seven or 17 or 70 when you came to Christ all of that was a life lived in hostility with God. And yet though because he loves his enemies even while Christ was our enemy he died for us so that we could become not continually hostile to God, but a friend. Isn't that what it says here? It says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. There it is, grace. God's manifold grace grace, His favor. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You say, well, I, but I wasn't humble. Yes, but God humbled you. He humbled me. He, he humbled me by showing me who I really was. He, he turned on the lights, as it were. And I saw the despicability of my life, the onerousness of the stench of my soul. And what did I do? Well, by his grace, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because I need to go through the process of humbling myself. No wonder he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will what? He'll exalt you. He'll lift you up. So in eternity past, seeing my plight, seeing my condition, seeing my heart, seeing who I am without Christ, God in his merciful grace and favor said, I will place my favor upon him. Through no duty of his, th- through, through no works of mine, but by his work, by sending Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. No wonder it says grace to you. And it says grace to you from Don't miss that. From, by the agency, by the gift of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My heavenly Father sent his Son so that I would be redeemed. That, my friends, is grace. 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 God's grace. And not just grace. Peace. You see it there? Peace. Grace to you and peace. And you know, at the very end of this letter, Paul emphasizes, as he has done now here in the opening about peace, he does in the benediction. Look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself... The, the God of peace, the, the God who is peace, give you peace how much of the time? At all times. And in what way? In every way. Folks, I think that just about covers it. Peace from God, from His benevolent hand at all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. Grace and peace. Oh, this is grace and peace. This is, this is such peace that we don't deserve. Do, do we deserve any of this? Not on your life do we deserve any of this. I'll tell you, this wise, benevolent God According to James chapter 3, the wisdom from above, that means from God, is first pure, then peaceable. Here's our word, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, in order for any of us to live in peace and have peace and confer peace on others, we have to have been given peace ourselves. We we have to be given that which we could not do in and of ourselves. It has to be given to us. And it is given to us and it is given to us in such an abundance by a benevolent god we'll close with this Titus chapter 3 you must turn there this is this is what i might call the combination of benevolence this loving and kind god and his blessings grace and peace in one passage so wonderful in fact a couple of passages chapter 2 verse 11 chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that's all people who are saved, training us, this is what grace does, my friends, training us, sort of poking us, prodding us, working in us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who did what? Verse 14, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see what he takes away from us? Ungodliness, worldly passions living self-controlled, upright, godly lives, being purified because we want to be zealous for good works. And then you want to see the benevolence of our God, our Heavenly Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he did what? He saved us. He he saved me. He delivered me from my sins. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. His grace. And how did He do that? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He, the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, there's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, my dear friends, if you're a Christian, don't ever for one minute and then when you do confess it, that God is altogether benevolent. He saved us. Not according to our works of righteousness, because we don't have any works of righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, so that you and I could look into the very bosom of this benevolent God and say, Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son, so that we might continue to do the works until the works are done. What a great opening to this book. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this benevolence, this lover of enemies and his children and the giver of good gifts, perfect gifts, and the one who bestows grace, favor, and peace to the undeserving. No wonder the Thessalonians who are persecuted and afflicted and suffering can gain much encouragement from the pen of Paul. Thank you for his teaching ministry. Thank you for his teaching ministry in our lives. Thank you for an opening that we might have read a thousand times without breaking it up and tearing it apart and analyzing it word by word so gloriously because we see the truth of what grace and peace are. Blessings upon our souls from this benevolent, beneficent God. Thank you, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that if there's someone here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would come to know him even today by crying out to him for such grace and peace. You don't want to be his enemy You don't want hostility with God. You want to draw near to him so that he would draw near to you. You would want to cleanse your hands, you filthy sinner. You you would want to, to see by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, your heart cleansed so that you might be his son or daughter. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for granting us new life in Christ. May we continue to seek to be faithful for the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.